Hello, and welcome to ABS in Mind, the podcast from the staff here at DebtWire ABS. We'll take you behind the curtains of the asset-backed securities markets and the loans that they help finance. I'm Al Yoon, and I'll be hosting today. Hello, thanks for tuning into our podcast for today, the first day of October of 2020. Today, we're gonna take a deeper dive into the inner workings of mortgage finance and the mortgage securitization market. Now, Eric Kaplan, my guest today, is kind of an omnipresent fixture of the mortgage markets, but his primary role is the director of the Milken Institute for Financial Markets Housing Finance Program, uh, where he focuses on preserving what's right about the mortgage finance markets and then also reforms where needed. Welcome, Eric, it's good to have you. I'm very happy to be here, Al, thanks very much. Great. Among the other hats he wears, Eric was recently recruited to join the Fixed Income Investors Network to chair the RMBS Task Force. Now, the Fixed Income Investors Network is, I guess, just what it sounds like, entirely a buy-side organization, not the bankers and issuers that come up with deals. So uh, I've been curious as to what investors want to achieve with this, quote-unquote, task force. Uh, Eric, I'm wondering if you could discuss that a little bit. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I was uh, approached by Finn, Fixed Income Investors Network, to uh, see if I could join the effort to increase the education effort with respect to its membership. Uh, and that excited me. I, as you had said before, and very kindly, uh, I've been around the RMBS industry wearing a lot of different hats over the course of, I guess, now over 27 years. And one of the things I love so much about the industry is that the more you learn about it from cradle to grave, from the origination of a loan all the way through exit and secondary market, in this case, securitization and the ongoing life of the loan, the more you can connect the pieces. And one of the things that I'd like to do for the FIN membership is to help them connect the pieces and really think about RMBS in a way that they may not be accustomed to because without the investor, there is no market. And investors are among the smartest there are when it comes to understanding what's in a deal, what the risks are, pricing for the risks. But for every apparent risk, there is a nuanced risk, which is just as important. We saw how evident that was coming out of the financial crisis. And we've been talking a lot about that over the course of the last 10 years in the RMBS reform effort. So from my perspective, the opportunity to come in and really work with this critical part of the market to help in, to help them make better informed decisions, uh, to help them understand the risks and risk allocation and other features of deals that they're investing in or have the opportunity to invest in uh, in, a, in a different way through a different set of eyes. That's what's most compelling to me about this and uh, what really excites me about the opportunity. Okay. I know it's, uh, it, I mean, you were just you know, named uh, uh, to, the, to the FIN task force uh, just very recently, but I'm just wondering, you know, have you guys had any, any chance to come up with any, you know, pet projects or is there anything like, you know, that uh, you want to, you know, start out with? I mean, what, what, are the, what are the discussions like when you talk to other, you know, the investors in the FIN? I, so we're just kicking it off now. So the, I uh, re just recently joined, and so we're in uh, I call it startup mode. Although the RMBS task force has been something that was established beforehand, but now we're just we're trying to ramp it up along with a few other task forces within Fin. And um, I, I think the most important part of that now is you know it comes out of the pandemic. 
there are a lot of issues, and I noted uh, or touched on before, uh, with respect to post-crisis RMBS. And I've been talking about that with, along with a lot of other people in the industry about what's better, what may not be as, uh, as favorable depending on, on uh, who you are and, and what position you have in a securitization with respect to certain features of post-crisis RMBS. But we've been working on that for years. A lot of those features now are, are exposed, really put, uh, put on the front burner in the wake of the pandemic and the stress that the pandemic is placing on borrowers and some of the features of deals. So first and foremost, really helping investors understand and parse through the impact of the pandemic on borrowers and on features of deals in which they are either investing now or, or are looking at for investment purposes or may have the opportunity to invest in going forward because we wrote a paper on this at my fellows and I within the Milken Institute in the Housing Finance Program uh, in the Center for Financial Markets, which is my, my uh, day job, about PLS and forbearance in the wake of uh, the COVID crisis in the wake of the pandemic. And some of the, the most important things to think about are how is loss mitigation, how is, is relief to borrowers being delivered in these deals in uh, non-agency PLS? Is it being delivered? If so, how? Who's making the decisions? Do the documents uh, specify the type of relief that's available? How it's to be delivered? What happens upon repayment? What are the implications for reporting? What are the implications for delinquency triggers? What are the implications for cash flows? And several other features and deals which strike at the heart of investment decisions or portfolio management. And I think those are tailor-made for the, you know, exactly the kinds of things that we need to be looking at and talking about now. Uh, we raised those issues in the paper in May, knowing that they would be a problem, and they clearly are turning out to be problems. And I think that's the most important thing that uh, any investor should be thinking about right now. And again, it's more, it's all about understanding uh, what the risks are, what questions to ask, what answers you need, in order to make an informed investment decision or a portfolio management decision. When I talk to investors, Eric, I mean, I hear a lot of frustration in their voices as to, you know, how to read the deals. Uh, I mean, you know, despite the, you know, the language in the deals that, you know, may be clear in some cases, may be up to up for interpretation in others, um, because uh, the inputs that they're getting and data, for instance, like how the servicers are dealing with forbearance. I mean, there's no standard for that. I mean, there's no roadmap. And um, I mean, it varies so much from deal to deal that uh, sometimes the investors just don't know quite what they're getting. I mean, do you think that's, you know, a problem going forward or it just, I mean, how, how should an investor work through that? Uh, I think... I think you hit the heart of what investors need to do, which is to ask the question, go back to the documents and look, you know, post-crisis RMBS, and you and I have talked about this a lot over the years, it's marked by, it's very different than pre-crisis RMBS. I, I do think generally the deals look different. And I think overall there's a sense that PLS participants have been more, let's call it generally compliant. We don't see a lot of the same actions uh, that took place pre-crisis. Certainly they're not apparent at this point. But the, every deal is different. And within each deal, 
there are some things that are disclosed and readily available to investors to look at and engage and digest and you know, understand and apply to their pricing and investment methodologies. But there are some things that are not. There are some provisions or policies and procedures or some contractual arrangements or even some discretion that's provided to certain parties that are not readily available for investors. And this goes to this highlight we've been talking about for several years, which is are RMBS investors protected in the same way that they would be if they were whole loan investors? And if they had the ability to get their hands on the loan file to understand what's happening with each loan on a loan by loan basis, because when those loans are sold into a trust, the trust owns the loans. And I think, again, something that you and I have talked about over the, the years, many investors feel, and I think rightfully so, they should be protected to the same extent that they would be if they owned whole loans in terms of, of making sure that hmm. contracts are complied with and the, they understand the risk allocation and that risk allocation is enforced. And that is not necessarily the case with respect to some of the stresses put on deals through COVID or because of the COVID pandemic. And some of the issues there are, you know, does an investor really have the information they need in order to understand what's happening with the loans? There are differences in delinquency reporting and, re and methodologies and you may even have different interpretations among servicers within the same deal, which I've used this, this following phrase before, it obliterates the integrity of the data being reported. I think there are some, some reporting companies out there or some uh, oversight companies that are saying there are differences even within certain deals of what a servicer is reporting in terms of delinquencies, uh, MAT and forbearance uh, loans, what a master servicer is reporting and what a trustee is reporting, let alone a third party coming in. You can't have those discrepancies. I'll say that systemically, because the market is not the size it was pre-crisis, you don't have the same risks. But I think if, if you're a fixed income investor, you have an investment in deal, that's what matters to you. It doesn't matter that the system's not at risk, your investment is at risk. And so really understanding what is happening with the loan, right? You kind of go through a waterfall. Is the loan in forbearance? What's the status of the borrower? Were they making their payments before? Is that borrower still employed? When does the forbearance end? When the forbearance ends, has the borrower reestablished an ability to pay on that loan? Uh, if not, or if so, what's the repayment plan? How does that impact the cash flows? Do the, do, does delinquency reporting match what's actually happening with the loan? And is it as, re, as is required under the governing deal documents so that the investor, what's happening to the deal and what's happening with respect to the investor's assets, the bonds that the investor owns, is it what's supposed to happen? Is it what the investor signed up for and understood going in, assuming they did all the diligence that, that was required to make an informed investment decision? So all of that's at risk and every deal stands to be different. The other thing too, I'll say is that a lot of us in the industry have been talking about the difference uh, differences in PLS because aspirationally, one of the things I think most people will say is that, or realize at least, is that uh, borrower relief in the face of the pandemic should be based on borrower need and not based on who owns the borrower's loan. So if you and I both went out and got a loan from uh, the same lender, for example, we, let's say we both got uh, a Fannie Mae eligible loan and the lender sold your loan to Fannie Mae and put mine in a PLS, 
you're entitled to CARES Act protection up to 12 months forbearance as a right. I'm not. And so, so there's a real difference in a lot of the industry stakeholders, not just industry, but consumer advocates, government uh, representatives have been working on that. But the implications in PLS are important because you have servicers who generally are trying to do the right thing and help borrowers make it through the pandemic. There's the talk of moral hazard is not what it was. It's very, very different than, than it was in connection with the uh, financial crisis. But delivering relief according to the rules of the governing deal documents may be very different. A servicer may want to do right by the borrower, but may be constrained. And again, there may be parties who have the authority to exercise discretion under those deal documents, who quite frankly may be prioritizing their own balance sheet over the need for borrower relief. But that all remains to be seen. But going back to the point of what I would like to accomplish in terms of educating or helping uh, inform investors is know the right questions to ask, demand the answers as long as uh, you know they fit within privacy laws. Because without, without the right information, you're flying blind. You know, that, that said, as, as frustrated as an investor might be in, in dealing with, uh, with deals and, uh, in, in, well, during the pandemic, you know, it doesn't seem like you know, there's nothing stopping them from buying at this point. I mean, you know, spreads are tightening. I mean, I know there's not a lot of supply out there, but, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be, you know, a problem in selling deals. And Eric, in the past, uh, you've been critical of the reps and warrants and new non-agency deals um, that is uh, being, you know, that they're not much more investor friendly than they were in 2007, let's say. But again, those deals uh, seem to have no problem drawing investors. So, I mean, do you think, you know, is it easy, will it be easy to enact change when, you know, the issuers and the bankers still, you know, have uh, plenty of demand for their deals? I think, you know, there's a few different ways to look at that. You know, back to things like reps, warranties, and enforcement, it's, I would say, less, less so critical and more going with eyes wide open because, as we've talked about, there's been a lot of improvements, certainly a lot of improvements relative to pre-crisis, but a lot of the, a lot of the response to pre-crisis weaknesses and deficiencies in deals were ultimately they made the deals more issuer friendly than investor friendly. And I've been joined uh, in that view, I think, by many investors, both large and small, also in public forums. But as long as you understand the risk going in, you can make that investment decision. Do I buy or not? And at what price do I buy? And one of the features of post-crisis RMBS up to this point is that many investors who chose to buy, uh, you know, it's, it's not the size was enough to satisfy the appetite that was out there. Even now, we're not talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. So the appetite is strong within the, uh, the size of the market as it currently stands. And it, it was starting to ramp up uh, and for you know, various reasons. But that these investors were comfortable with the level of credit enhancement, the economic environment, and the like. We saw a freeze up in that market at the time of the pandemic, and now that people are starting to get a read on who's coming back, who's getting loans, who's able, who has reestablished uh, their ability to, to uh, pay or repay the loans, again, it gives investors more information with which to arm themselves and make their investment decisions. Okay, thanks, Eric. Uh, I want to turn to some potential changes in non-agency mortgage origination, actually. Uh, the QM rule. 
The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has proposed to make some changes there, including doing away with debt-to-income tests and introducing a price-based approach uh, to de determine the riskiness of a loan. Eric, you've got the CFPB's ear as the chair of its uh, Consumer Advisory Board. Can you, can you discuss this QM rule a little bit with me? Sure. Um, and as you note, I am uh, I actually today is the first day that I transitioned from vice chair to chair of the CFPB Consumer Advisory Board. And uh, certainly what we do is non-binding, but it's a, a great forum to join with others who are on the CAB and some of the other committees, the advisory committees uh, that um, were, were mandated by Dodd-Frank for the CFPB to establish and to be able to act as sort of a liaison or eyes and ears of what's happening among industry in terms of trends and practices for, for the Bureau. And it's been really, really rewarding and an opportunity to be interactive with them. But my views are my views. And um, I think I do think the Bureau has absolutely listened to feedback. It's very difficult to come up with a policy that ultimately tries to be flexible enough to allow for uh, lenders to address the, the borrowing needs of, the, of consumers uh, and at the same time make sure that you're not opening the door to predatory practices or products or inappropriate, uh, inappropriate behavior within the industry. So it's a real challenge as we've seen and you can only try to do the best that you can do. But I, I absolutely will say that it's been my experience that they listened and thought this out very carefully over the course of, of several years uh, with a tremendous amount of feedback. I think they did uh, a very solid job in responding to industry and consumer advocates moving to a pricing test. Right? There was a very strong contingent of industry uh, and advocates proponents of a pricing-based test. There are some potential pitfalls, and I think it will be critical for the Bureau and for stakeholders to be vigilant about these practices. So in a nutshell, you've got the safe product limitations in place. So no NAGAM loans, no IO loans can be QM and the like. You have a 3% points of fees limitation. Those stay the same. And you, all loans have to meet the eight underwriting tests that before were applicable to, well, was applicable to all loans, but really was thought of in the context of non-QM loans because you could be deemed to satisfy those eight underwriting requirements by at least a non-agency complying with Appendix Q, which laid, laid forth very prescriptive underwriting. The Bureau is getting rid of Appendix Q as being too prescriptive, and instead they're saying you have to meet the eight underwriting tests, and as long as the loan then falls within a certain pricing threshold, which is effectively a proxy for the kind of risk, underwriting risk or credit risk that a borrower and the loan would demonstrate, then you are entitled to the presumption of ability to repay and thus the qualified mortgage stamp. Effectively though, what this does is it gives a QM patch, a, an automatic QM determination to what before were non-QM lenders. Be, uh, as long as you fit within the pricing threshold. So, for example, now we have loans non-QM that lenders presume to have met the eight underwriting factors, but you'll never know unless there's a challenge. And when due diligence firms look at these loans to put them into securitization, they only say, yes, you met the eight factors. Uh, we're, yep, we confirm that, but it doesn't mean that the ability to repay determination was uh, sufficient or that a judge will uphold that. No one can make that determination unless it's a judge. 
So you will now have loans that if they price within a safe harbor threshold, a judge will not be able to exercise the kind of discretion as to the quality of how you met those eight factors. So there are some people who, let, let's say, have an issue with one-month bank statement loans. And don't, some feel they, they can meet the ability to repay test. Other feel, others feel that they can't. For a non-QM loan now, a judge can make that determination if there's an ATR challenge and connects with a foreclosure. If Going forward, if that loan prices within the QM pricing threshold and otherwise meets all the factors, a judge cannot rule as to the quality of whether or not that one-month bank statement is sufficient to have considered a borrower's income, for example, right? It's just the fact that the, the sorry, the, that the lender considered the borrower's in, uh, income, that's what will matter. So you, you extrapolate that and you can see that there is a potential for very bad practices and inconsistent documentation requirements to seep into lending. And the only thing that will govern whether or not those loans are QM is going to be the pricing threshold and the other tests that we talked about. And so I think if the Bureau is vigilant and I think if industry is vigilant, then, you know, that can help to stave off going down a, a path that I don't think any of us wants to go down again. Okay. Thanks, Eric. I mean, so what do you think it, it means? I mean, I know it's early, but uh, what do you think it means in terms of, uh, you know, the overall size of the non-QM market? I mean, I, you know, does this mean that some loans that, uh, you know, our QM now wouldn't be non-QM in the future? Yeah, for, for the securitization market, there are loans that are non-QM now that will be QM going forward, right? So, so ones that fall out because QM isn't applicable, like investor loans, those will, you know, those are not even non-QM loans, but they are exited in non-QM deals. Uh, but there are loans that would otherwise qualify as uh, QM, uh, but for, let's say, you know, a loan that is a 50 DTI and otherwise would, would uh, you know, meet the ability to repay test, those loans will fall within QM. So you can see expanded credit loans coming into the QM market. Again, it's just, just a question of how these loans are priced. One of the impacts of that will be risk retention, right? You won't have, so you won't, those loans and QM deals, if they are QM, you won't have to factor in the cost of risk retention. You won't have to factor in the cost, uh, the additional cost that rating agencies assess and translate into extra credit enhancement by just by virtue of being non-QM. And so you're going to get a pricing bump on those loans anyway, which could bring, you know, bring a large number of loans underneath or within the QM pricing threshold. So I do expect mm -hmm. to see a growth in the QM market just by virtue of loans that work non-QM moving into uh, the QM bucket. And I think uh, there are some companies that have done pretty good analysis of uh, sizing that out, at least for now, but I expect that to be the trend going forward. And look, that could be okay. a good thing too, because yeah, it, um, it will allow lenders to exercise more judgment and discretion in trying to address the, again, the, uh, the borrowing needs of the consumer base and re even reach underserved markets or find new and uh, hopefully valid valid determinations of creditworthiness. But again, uh, we must be vigilant to make sure that we don't go down a bad path. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in terms of the, what will be QM, I mean, it, I mean, we're still talking non-agency though, right? Non-agency QM per se? Well, we are, but, you know, interestingly, the QM patch is going away. So Fannie and Freddie, for example, will have to abide by the same rules when it comes to QM 
as a non-agency market. FHA, VA, the government entities, they have their own rules, but because by statute, they were able to set their own QM definition. Not Fannie and Freddie, they had this temporary patch, which is also expiring part of the uh, rulemaking of the, that the Bureau has done around QM. So um, there will be also, depending on what happens with the GSEs and what happens to their footprint, what, whether it's through Director Calabria or, or uh, you know, over time down the road, another director, um, you know, whatever, whatever year that may be, whether it's uh, in the near future or, uh, you know, at the end of the five-year term, there's a lot of variables around that. But, you know, that will also impact the sizing of that market and potentially move loans that mm-hmm. were GSE loans into the non-agency market. We're starting to run a little bit short on time, but uh, Eric, I wanted to let you get a plug in for Milken Institute. Um, you guys have a big conference coming up, right? We do. We do. Our our main event is the Milken Institute Global Conference, which is usually held in Los Angeles at the beginning of May every year. That was obviously pushed off and uh, postponed because of the pandemic. And so we'll be going virtual from October 12th to the 21st of this year. So I'm excited okay. about that. Okay, great. And can you discuss it all? I mean, you know, any of the subject matter that you expect to tackle there? Uh, I would encourage uh, people to look online if they're interested. And, and there may be many of your listeners or uh, uh, whoever's listening now to check the website, the Milken Institute Global Conference website, because an agenda, if it's not up yet, should be up soon. Uh, it will be the same kind of programming and content. We've reduced the number of sessions so that we don't have as many uh, overlaps and we've extended the number of days, but it will be a mix of political leaders, you know, C-suite leaders, leader, thought leaders and, and from arts, culture, entertainment, science, medicine, uh, you name it, uh, like we always have uh, on a range of topics. It's called uh, Meeting the Moment. That's the theme. So, you know, clearly that relates to the pandemic, but even more uh, a lot of the issues around racial justice and uh, a lot of the, the social and economic issues that we know are on the table in front of us. It, it is all connected, and really the pandemic has exposed, if not exacerbated, some of the things that we need to solve now. So that that uh, is really going to be the crux of the content this year, and, and really in the day-to-day work right. that we're doing as well. Okay, great. Thank you. And then the dates of that conference again? October 12th to the 21st, and if you go to milkeninstitute.org or if you do a search for a Milken Global Conference, you'll come, it'll come up. And I, again, I think the agenda should be up this week, may already be up now. I do have a panel coming up. I don't want to speak about it yet, just in case it's not up and they have not officially released the content, but it will look at uh, the challenge of cost burden and affordability uh, with uh, a few very strong guests. I, I will have the privilege of moderating, so I'm looking forward to that. Okay, great. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Uh, Eric Kaplan, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, that's it for ABS in Mind for today. Okay, goodbye, everybody. Thanks very much, Al. Take care. Thanks for listening to ABS in Mind. If you're hungry for the skinny on asset-backed bonds, residential and commercial mortgage debt, consider DebtWire.com, or just tune in here next time. Also look to us on social media.